What's that sound? That's the sweet sound of bacon. I like bacon. You like bacon. I like a biblical narrative podcast with Andy Rigoni. You like a biblical narrative podcast with Andy Rigoni. So, what is this? Biblical details, historical context that puts you in the action. And with that, let's get started. Welcome to Biblical Narratives Podcast. This is Andy, and I am sorry, guys, for getting this out a little late, but V and I have been in San Antonio this week, and I've only had a few open windows to write this week's narrative. In fact, right now, I'm trying to record this from a lobby, and I have a feeling that there's going to be no shortage of interruption and sort of thing, so forgive me for uh, for that, but I otherwise, I'm really stoked about this episode. And, and just a word of warning here, while I don't wish to get too graphic in this podcast overall, I just got to tell you that there are times when some graphic and even fairly nasty things happen in scripture. I mean, think about it. Jesus is torture, crucifixion, bleeding out. Yeah. So my passion here is to create an authentic narrative that brings the reality out of such historical events to light. So what happens when the bullied becomes the bullies? Our hearts go out to the underdogs. We love to hear great stories about those who work hard to overcome insurmountable odds and vanquish those who have previously bullied them. Nearly every movie out there has had some element of this theme, but some seem to stick out more than others, like Rocky is such a movie, Star Wars, Harry Potter, Spider-Man, and any of the Indiana Jones movies. You can probably figure out how old I am by virtue of the movies that I like, right? But what happens when those who have been formally bullied, those individuals who have been bullied, come into power? Well, some remember their roots and end up becoming compassionate and conscientious leaders, whereas others can easily fall into the same trap of personal ambition and turn out to be just like the nasty people who previously picked on them. Curiously, many will have children who never experienced what it was like to be bullied and never to be acquainted with such profound struggle or what was needed to overcome said struggle. Perhaps what's crazy is that these children who often will grow up, they become bullies. It's ironic. They can easily become the ones who often grow up without being afforded the much-needed character-developing opportunities to help shape them into the thankful and thoughtful human beings that society wishes for them to be. So when they rise to power, life can become a problem for others because they insist upon having their own way and are not accustomed to being held accountable. In other words, it's easy to become the bully as selfish ambition often becomes the petri dish where bullies are born. As we get into the narrative, I want us to start thinking about the main characters. Then think about their backgrounds and their history as a people. Now, we're going to discuss more of this at the end, but in the meantime, let's get right into this episode. Peter, a voice in the room exclaims, I'm so glad you made it. Entering into the dark, still room, a shaken Peter sees a somber John seated next to his mother. Not recognizing Peter's presence, Salome continues to look down and says nothing. John looks up and smiles at Peter's arrival. Hey, my brother, Peter offers as he leans over to hug John. John looks into Peter's eyes and gestures over to his mother who hasn't moved. 
Taking a knee before, Peter searches for the most fitting words. Salome, I'm, I'm so sorry. He reaches over to kiss her on both cheeks. Remaining lifeless, Salome says nothing. Finding a chair to place next to John, Peter sits, leans forward, and places his elbows on his knees. With little said between them, a morning Salome, John, and Peter, and the others sit throughout the day. One down, two to go, Herod shares discreetly. I'm pretty optimistic here. In a public declaration of unity between King Herod Agrippa and key Sanhedrin members, the prominent leadership of Judea slowly stroll along the royal stoa. Suddenly, an impromptu parade route is formed within moments as the Temple Mount teams with increased activity from recently arriving pilgrims. Impressed by the extravagant column porch located on the southern side of the Temple Mount, Herod cannot but help appreciate the grandeur of his grandfather's work. Taking an interest in the merchant activity, Herod smiles at the dramatic uptick in business development. This is always so good for our economy, he thinks to himself. Interrupting his course of thinking, one of the leaders speaks up. Yes, sir, though with all the deference, my lord, Passover is now upon us. My concern is that we need to finish the work that we started. All smiles before his people. Herod nods to the other leaders. Yes, we will need to address a plan of action when we get a private moment. Let's head back to my gardens and discuss this further. A curious young boy runs up and points at Herod's regal apparel. Looking back at his nearby mother, he yells, Mom, look at this man's shiny clothes. A horrified mother watches helplessly as her naive child runs up to the king. Wide-eyed, she stands speechless, not knowing what she should do. Bending down to meet the child, a grinning Herod Agrippa reaches out to pick up the boy. Smiling, the boy points at his mother and says, That's my mom. Herod responds, Oh, and what a wonderful mom she is. Bowing her head, the woman approaches a welcoming King Agrippa and apologizes for her son's actions. Handing her son back to her, a laughing Herod exclaims, No apology needed. He's a curious young boy who wants to investigate the world around him. That is a wonderful trait. Thank you, my lord, the woman responds. With head bowed, the woman moves out of the way of the entourage. Exiting the Temple Mount, the royal entourage uses Herod's private bridge to bypass the city below. With the passing of each battlement, members from the Sanhedrin steal glances of the city below. Picking up on their curiosity, Herod takes the opportunity. These battlements serve as a protection from archers who have positioned themselves atop one of those rooftops below. Herod points to the residences some 25 feet below them. For a visual demonstration, Herod then moves behind one of the many small defense walls positioned atop of a wall. This is the perfect place to reload a quiver or to take a short break should a skirmish break out. With nods of understanding, the members gather around their guide. Impressive, sir, one of the members says. Yes, the Roman engineers were fairly concerned about the well-being of their own archers, so they built these towers that you see ahead of us. Herod leads the group towards one of the towers. Rome's soldiers need to safely monitor every part around the wall, so these towers make it advantageous for such monitoring. Seeing an opportunity to debrief as they continue along the top of the wall, Herod slows his pace in an effort to surround himself with the Sanhedrin's key leaders. Yes, 
Passover is now upon us, and I think we're in a more secure location to discuss our dealing with the Jesus followers. Exchanging looks of anticipation with one another, one of the Sanhedrin members turns to Herod and asks, Yes, my lord, we would love to know what has transpired so far. We only know bits and pieces right now, so hearing from you would be most helpful. You're aware of what happened with James, Herod asks. Yes, sir. Your plan worked flawlessly, one of the members says. Looking over at the man, Herod says, Yes, God has afforded us a quick win at that. As heads nod, another member asks, Yes, were there others who have been targeted? Herod shakes his head. Outside of making several arrests and conducting interrogations, James is the only one we've removed so far, he says. And what of Peter? Another senior member asks. With he and James' brother John still about, our work is not yet done. We've had a fair amount of trouble with them over the past several years. Not only have they swayed our commoners into thinking that Jesus indeed raised from the dead, the crowd swear Peter healed a lame beggar in the streets along with others. We arrested and even punished them accordingly, and yet somehow they managed to free themselves when we had them in our grasp. Nodding with fresh understanding, Herod responds, Hmm, we hope to change that this time. Sir, another responds, with Passover upon us, we believe now is the time to strike. While I don't know about John, I know Peter is here in Jerusalem and is no doubt grieving James's death along with the others. Sir, we have a small window of opportunity in front of us, so we would like to know what your next step might be. Right you are, my friend, Herod comforts. Make no mistake, we're well aware of Peter's circumstances. He had to console more than just James's death. Peter also has to account for several others under his care who have since been arrested. We successfully sacked three homes and hold seven Christ followers under our care. The newly enlightened members nod in appreciation. Herod continues, We have several keeping watch on Peter's movements at any given time. Not realizing Herod could arrest Peter at any moment, the Sanhedrin members share looks of confusion. Picking up on their body language, Herod explains himself. I didn't wish to arrest Peter before we met today. Herod takes a breath and looks into the eyes of each person there. Are you sure that you wish to do this? Communicating resolve, the members of the Sanhedrin seem to be standing taller than before. King Herod Agrippa, one of the members begins, on behalf of the Sanhedrin, it's safe to say that we are committed to seeing this movement fall by the wayside. The Christ followers have been a thorn in our side for far too long. The law of Moses dictates that we dispense with Peter as we earlier had with another disciple named Stephen. We had him in our hands before, sir, and we wish to deal with this once and for all. Very well, Herod responds, but mind you, his blood is on your hands. He looks around to see each Sanhedrin head nodding in approval. I think we can adjourn for now, gentlemen. We'll keep you apprised. Walking at a clipped pace in a dimly torch-lit underground tunnel, a hasty Herod Agrippa makes his way to the fortress of Antonia. He ascends a stone stairwell and finds a number of Roman guards at ease in their quarters. Startled by Herod's sudden arrival, the guards quickly come to attention and await any pertinent communication. Where are the Praetorians? Herod asks sternly. 
The attentive guards look at one another to see who might speak. Finally, a ranking optionist responds. Sir, they quarter upstairs. I can go retrieve an officer for you at once, my lord. Herod nods, and the optionist quickly excuses himself and leaves. Within a minute, the optionist returns with a prefect. Feeling like progress has been made, Herod asks to privately counsel with the prefect, and the two make their way into a private room. You understand what I would like you to accomplish here, Herod asks. The prefect nods and summarizes Herod's directive. Yes, sir. You wish for us to arrest the Christ follower Peter at a time when he is alone and without being seen by others. Herod takes a step closer and gestures the prefect to move his ear close to Herod's mouth. And with a whisper, Herod says, Good. I'm glad we understand each other then. Placing his hand around the unmoving prefect's shoulder, Herod softly continues, Not to be seen or heard. Act as if your life depends upon this. At full attention, the prefect stoically stares straight ahead. As Herod steps towards the door, he places his hand on the doorpost. He then looks back at the prefect before making his exit and says, Because it does. Folks, we're going to need to stop here for this week. Things are getting tough for the Christ followers in Jerusalem. An alliance between Rome and the Sanhedrin has been struck. The Romans are in the hunt, and which is a game changer for believers. Like many before them, the Christ followers will need to scatter and lay low. On one hand, this policy of arresting, placing on trial, and stoning Christ followers has already been in place for some time. But now, with Rome's involvement, the policy has new teeth, if you will, and will receive the appropriate level of resources to ensure its effectiveness. Now, perhaps what's most curious here is seeing how the bullied have now become the bullies. Jews have been scattered around the known world for centuries by now, knowing full well what it's like to be occupied by aggressors like Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Seleucids, Ptolemies, and now even Rome. For even four or eight hundred years, Jews have been bullied, beat up, enslaved, hunted down, and killed. To be Jewish meant to be acquainted with significant grief and loss. Perhaps the irony here is how we observe the Jews receiving a taste of what it's like to be on the other side of things. Here, the bullied have become the bullies. Imagine for a moment what it must feel like for the Jewish leaders right now. Herod has given them the opportunity to rise up, and they have taken their cue to rid themselves of a nuisance that has bothered them for nearly a decade. Now, our hearts go out here to the underdogs, right? Previously, we felt sorry for the Jews or anyone who has been oppressed or bullied by a stronger and more ambitious nation. However, in this situation, we may not find ourselves so sympathetic to the Jewish leaders. Instead, our hearts go out to the suffering Christ followers who are simply trying to survive while communicating their message of the kingdom of heaven. Looking at the fruit of this rapidly growing group, we see much life change and growing compassion in the world. Well, that's good, right? Well, the Jewish leaders in Rome didn't exactly see it that way. Now, if we're to be honest, fast forward some 250 plus years, and you'll find that the church gets its turn to become the bullies. Again, this is ironic. Somebody comes along and introduces a better way, i.e. Jesus and the kingdom of heaven, but the better way gets lost along the way, and it becomes overshadowed by institutional policy, which often substitutes genuine spirituality with hidden duplicity and personal ambition. 
Even in spiritual environments, the message of the kingdom of heaven can easily get lost. But that doesn't mean that the kingdom of heaven isn't growing. No, it is, and it is quite well. The kingdom of heaven isn't the result of organizational genius. No, the kingdom of heaven grows by those who willfully seek out God and choose to stay connected to the vine. We see that in John 15. Curiously, you'll find that there are some great organizations that do encourage this. But you will also find those who belong to organizations that may not reflect the kingdom of heaven, yet they still wish to be used of God where they're at. God honors and grows them as well. So let's just wrap this up. At the core of humanity, we have a desire to serve ourselves, even at the expense of others. It shapes us in ways that we cannot fully understand. In such a desire, it's easy to become a bully when the opportunity arises. Yet the kingdom of heaven grows, well, differently. The kingdom of heaven is ever-growing with those who no longer wish to live this way. The kingdom of heaven grows when we surrender our ambitions and trade them for God's. Consider Jesus' words when sharing a parable of the wheat versus the weeds. And this is a reflection of the kingdom of heaven. Here's another story Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in the field. But at night, as the workers slept, an enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat, and then he slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. And the farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted that good seed is now full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked. No, he replied. You will uproot the weed if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them in the bundles, and to burn them, and to put the wheat in the barn. Folks, let's get some perspective here. God's going to have the final say. He will deal with the bullies accordingly. And rest assured, there will be peace for those who have surrendered their desires to passionately pursue God's. Well, that's it for this week. Have a wonderful week and may God continue to fashion you into the person that he's called you to be. May you be used of God as a delightful, delightful representative representing him to the world around you. Have a great week, folks. Bye-bye.